All right, everybody, welcome back for Film Shake, episode 26. I'm Jordan. And this is Nick. And today we're talking about SLC Punk, exclamation point. Exclamation point. That's right. You got to get that in there. And that's from 1998. That'll be our main review for today. And of course, if you don't know already, we are a 90s movie podcast covering everything from the terrible to the awesome. And we're going to see what we think about this film. This is your your first time diving in. Yes. If you didn't listen to our last episode, Nick lost the trivia battle dubiously to a uh, a certain surprise trivia battler as i guess was uh the sheriff of film shakingham was here he was such a douchebag yeah you're lucky he's not back to kick your ass again man no way because you made me watch punk's dead slc punk 2 which is awful and you are so <laughs> cruel for that but here's the thing oh. it's a direct sequel to the movie that we're talking about today and because of that we can't quite follow our normal form it's anarchy here at film shake the fallen warrior review is gonna come last things are already falling apart at the seams you know formats all over the place i don't know what we're gonna do yeah i guess we're just gonna have to jump into slc punk from 1998 Just quick synopsis about this film. This is uh, about two punks, one named Steve-O, played by Matthew Lillard, the other one, Bob, or affectionately titled Heroin Bob, played by Michael Gorjan. They both live in Salt Lake City, and it's set in 1985. They are rebelling against the conservative Mormon backdrop of Utah, and Steve-O, throughout the film, walks us through his anarchist philosophy, introduces us to various characters around the city. We get into three parties and one concert. We see multiple fights, sex, drinking drugs, rocking out. But surprisingly, the conflict is more internal as the film goes on. It's sparked by various incidents where Steve-O realizes his anarchist creed is flawed, and he's trying to figure things out as he grows up in a city that he hates. Yes, and don't expect kind of the normal formula for a movie to happen here. Yeah, I was maybe 40 minutes into this thinking, wait, there's there's not really a conflict yet. There's not a villain here. I'm not sure where this is going to go. There's not really a plot. <laughs> there's not a plot. There's really not. And that's the thing about this movie. It, it's different. And I tell you what, Jordan, back in the day when you and your friends were all into this movie, I thought this movie's stupid. If they like it this much and they're quoting it, they're so immature compared to me. I'm five years older than them, getting my film minor at LSU watching cool foreign movies, and they're just watching stupid trash like this movie. (laughs) And I didn't know anything about it, Jordan. Yeah, you hadn't even seen it, and you're putting it down, calling it trash. I didn't even know Matthew Lillard was in it. (laughs) I didn't even know, and I love Matthew Lillard, and I always have. I never even knew he was in this film, let alone the main character who narrates the entire film. You were that film snob douche who put down the movie you had never even seen. That's right. Just based on my friends like it, so it must suck. These guys skateboard. I mean, that's cool and all, and I actually can't skateboard, and I'm jealous. (laughs) But 
They're just <laughs> not cool, n- not as mature as me, not as counterculture, not as much of an anarchist. They're just following the system of liking this trendy movie, which wasn't even trendy. That's the thing, right? This is a cult classic. It, it yeah. only made like $237,000 in theaters. Like This is like an underground sleeper hit. I'm just treating it like you guys are huge fans of like Transformers or something, <laughs> you know, which didn't come yeah. out until years later from this moment. But still... I was a douche, man. I'm going to apologize right now. That was that was lousy. I just want to get that out from the forefront. All is forgiven. You're, you, all is forgiven. You watch this movie now. That's what matters. So you've come around. And yeah, I'm really, I'm really curious to see how you responded to this. Like you kind of hinted at, I grew up with this film, uh, me and my skater friends. Uh, I guess we probably just found it at the major video that was in front of our neighborhood just Saw the cover, saw Matthew Lillard on there, thought it looked really cool. Saw you know, the word punk. Saw the word punk. It was green and orange. It was. It looked energetic and fun. So this just spoke to us. remember putting it on and watching it multiple times with good buddy of ours, Sean, who there's actually a character in the film named Sean. So that, that always just kind of tied it together for us. Uh, I, I even messaged him when we were planning on this episode talking about it. And said, hey, man, we're watching SLC Punk. Like, what are some fun memories you have about that film? He's like, oh, man, I remember us quoting it all the time. But the main thing I remember is we went to a garage sale and I bought some pants that were like plaid pants. They were kind of like in the spirit of some of the stuff that steve-o wears in this mo- in this movie so i totally remember those pants too oh you I remember, totally the remember them yeah yes. just so people know we're talking about things that happened in like 2000 and 2001 right now so this is like almost I mean, it is 20 years ago now that i'm really thinking about this and the irony is and we'll talk about more of this later you know i'm thinking you guys like this movie that's stupid and you know whatever but at the same time you and i were in a punk band together at this time, at the exact right. time that you guys like this movie. So how much douchier does that make me that I'm like <laughs> playing bass and singing nasally in this band with you and I'm dissing this movie that is following all our ideals or at least exploring them. I just yeah. want to kick myself in the nuts 20 years ago, man. <laughs> Are you referring to our band, uh, what was it, ADD? That's right. We've done multiple music things together. And that was not the best. I really think whenever we played as a duo, like eight years after that, no, I'm sorry, like six years after that, the songs that you were writing then were so good. And I enjoyed that so much. But I feel like we were just like feeling out what it means to play music with another person at that time. And we both had such strong personalities. And also, I was a douche, man. I'm making fun (laughs) of you guys for liking this poor underground movie that really needs more (laughs) respect. I'm just, just, I'm not, you talk about this, man. Tell me, tell me more about this situation with you in this movie. I watched it with Sean. I watched it with Tyler, a lot of our friends growing up and growing up, you know, we live in the South in a very conservative state in Louisiana and we were all, you know, young guys going to church together. That's how we met. And yet we all still kind of had this punk ethos or this attitude that you know at least we were into that type of music specifically like the christian punk scene i know you were heavily into that and i will and you kind of like helped get me into that more when we met and so to me like i always loved punk stuff but there's always kind of a contradiction there you know like growing up more conservative and christian and yet punk seems to like rebel against all of that <laughs> at the same time so it was like 
you almost feel like an oxymoron in a way growing up with these kind of interests and, you know, those kind of musical interests. And even like I was a young teenager, so the tendency to want to rebel and like be individualistic and, and do my own thing. And yet, you know, like we're going to church and singing worship songs and helping run the slide projector and stuff like that (laughs) (laughs) at the same time. Church is like the best place to get a key to and be like in the worship band, but then also have your own side punk band where you just have all this free equipment because you don't actually have any money to buy that equipment. That was really one of the greatest aspects of that. (laughs) For sure. That's what we did. You know, we'd sneak into the church after church hours and you know, practice our punk songs. So. That's right. I got felt up by a policeman one time because I left church after jamming at 2 a.m. Oh, jeez. And I forgot to put my headlights on. And, you know, he's thinking like, what is this guy doing pulling out of this church parking lot at 2 a.m. with no lights on? You know, I mean, th- th- he hardcore felt me up. I felt more punk than ever whenever he was like, <laughs> what do you have covered up in that backseat, son? And I was like, it's my bass guitar, sir. And he was like, it doesn't look like a guitar. And then he pulled the blanket off and my my bass was there underneath and I was like, told you. And he was like, put your damn headlights on. Have a nice <laughs> night. Felt like Steve-O and Bob getting accosted by the Salt Lake City police, maybe. That's right. Except it was the BRPD. Nice. Well, yeah, so that was my main experience with this film and just with the background that we had and, you know, growing up in a conservative place. I feel like now that I'm watching this years later, I can relate and identify even more with these characters in ways just like being more mature and less conservative as I've grown up so yeah we'll kind of talk about that as we get into like their different philosophies and where the characters go so yeah it's it's been a really interesting journey with this particular movie just with my personal journey growing up in you know different stages of my life but I, I wanted to get right into it with the opening credit sequence So we've got this goofy music that starts the beginning. It almost sounds like a early 90s like wacky comedy score. <laughs> like it reminded me of like the Beethoven movies, like the silly dog movies back in the day. Like it's like do 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 do. Like it doesn't fit the movie at all and I I want to feel like they did that on purpose where it's 1998, you're expecting like maybe this goofy like teen comedy and you know Matthew Lillard you know is kind of like coming off of some of those and everything but it's got this goofy like weird wacky music that just is like too upbeat for this movie and then at the same time you've got Steve-O Lillard's character starting his narration where he's talking about the thing about me and Bob is we hated rednecks because they were America incarnate in America well fuck America <laughs> and then like we do with Film Shake and so many of the movies that we've covered we open up with these two redneck guys getting out of a pickup truck and one of them is about to take a piss. So I'm like, again, we've got Waterworld, we've got Tremors, now we've got SLC Punk. It just is like the pantheon of movies starting with guys taking pisses, I guess, is what we're drawn to. I don't know. What what does this say about our, our 90s cinema, Nick? I, I don't know, man. I feel like it ain't a 90s movie if it doesn't start with the dude pissing. I think that's what that's we figured right. out. I feel like every other movie we've covered that doesn't start that way, there's got to be a deleted scene somewhere. <laughs> a deleted scene for every one of those movies. That's right. I know Point Break 
there's an actual starter scene where Keanu Reeves takes a piss before he goes to the firing range that no one's seen. And that's how <laughs> no. the movie actually started off. That's the real opening. I feel like it was the Hayes code for the 90s. We're like, all right, you gotta have, gotta have a guy taking a piss in your first shot. It's required now. We're, we're coming off a, a century of oppression. <laughs> we need to open this up a bit. That's the difference between the 90s and every other decade. We'll talk a little bit more later on about the 2016 sequel. But one thing that I noticed comparing these two is just the good old film stock you get in this movie. That just late 90s, you know, still making movies on celluloid. Never more apparent in this opening and these like freeze frame shots you get where at the beginning, Steve-O and Bob run out, beat down these two redneck guys with clubs, gleefully just beating the crap out of these guys, and then they run off into the darkness towards the camera. And then the camera just freezes. You hear like the projector sounds slowly clatter to a freeze frame, and then there's this nice blur as they're frozen, like laughing on screen, and his narration comes back in. What can I say? We were just a couple of young punks. And then you get this <laughs> nice like melt away of the frame. It just melts away into blackness, into the title screen, SLC Punk. You know, it's like spray painted on to the black background. I mean, you don't get that anymore, man. This like, I don't know, just again, just the projector freeze frame film stock like all that stuff right there in that first moment it's what you think of from fight club the next year david fincher does some similar things oh yeah very true very true and yeah just watching a little bit of the sequel and how digital it looked just made me really want to throw up and then watching this again after dipping my toe into that movie i couldn't get i couldn't get past like the third first 30 minutes i was like oh no man i'm just gonna go watch the original i'm sorry nick you're gonna have to go this one alone having gone it alone let me tell you there are worse things about that movie than it being shot digitally spoiler alert for later in the show yeah i think i'm aware of that for sure just having seen what i've saw but anyway yeah just really appreciate the look and the style of this movie it's really kinetic it's really kind of frenzied and all over the place but in a really fun way like the editing is just really stream of consciousness almost as we follow this character as he narrates us through a slice of punk life in the 80s. We get from that opening shot of them beating up the rednecks and then you get this awesome credit sequence where you've got uh, this song Sex and Violence playing in the background by the Exploited. You've got all the, like the cast names like on these fake punk album covers and stuff. It really uh, jumps from that goofy music at the beginning and then just goes right into like the real stock right there with uh, the exploited sex and violence. I thought they were saying sex offenders for the <laughs> longest time, but the song's called Sex and Violence. And just to jump right in talking about the soundtrack and how awesome that is on this film. I love how it's not really overt that there's a lot of weird choices on the soundtrack, but it's so great. I mean, you've got this Roxy music song, Mother of Pearl, that plays over one of the montages. You've got a Van Halen song that jumps in right when these uh, rednecks come back and start beating them up at their party later on. It's great because I feel like none of these songs lyrically are tied to the scenes. There's nothing like really too obvious or hitting you over the head, but it's the energy of the song matches the moment, you know, matches like the the fight scene with the Van Halen song or the the montage with the Roxy Music song. Like everything just it just works perfectly for that moment. 
went back and listened to a playlist on Apple Music for all the songs that were included in the movie that didn't make it onto the soundtrack. And then I rewatched the movie and it just made it all the more enjoyable, like being more familiar with the songs. And there's not really a traditional score here per se. It's really just scored by these songs. They flow into one another just from one song to the next. It feels like throughout the film. Great choices. It always seems like they come in at the perfect moment. So I think that's really a standout feature of this movie. Yeah, you've even got that great dub song from the specials that drops in after the credit sequence. Like you said, it's just it flows from one song to another, but it just punctuates a lot of the moments nicely. It works really well and a lot of different styles, you know, some classic punk stuff like you got Ramones in there. You've got the Stooges, of course, but some different stuff, too, like the specials, Roxy Music, Van Halen, you know, all this stuff. You know, it all works really well together and just matches each theme very well. After we get into that, we've got Matthew Lillard introducing us to various characters. So we start off with Michael Gorjan playing heroin Bob, his roommate. And Bob is a really fun character. He's really uptight. We start off with him just looking mad into the mirror and then he punches the mirror with his bare fist and he's like all tough for like five seconds and then he just kind of holds up his hand bleeding and he's starting <laughs> to cry. He looks exactly like Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver. Oh, for sure. And also, man, this actor, he's in SLC Punk 2, but I have to say... He just has the smoothest, cleanest, babyest skin. I was so jealous. Of <laughs> yeah. just, I was just looking, you know, like I'm I'm hitting 40 this year and I've got zits still. And he is like the most unblemished head. It's ridiculous. Very jealous of Bob Gorjan's head in this movie throughout. <laughs> Bob Gorjan. <laughs> Mixing the two. The character and the actor name. A What's his bit name? Uh, Michael. 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 Christian. Mike. Bob. Mike. Bob. Whatever. He to me, he will always be heroin. Bob. He's got the black short mohawk, like you said, looks like De Niro. He's even got the green jacket from Taxi Driver. So yeah, I definitely feel like that was uh, a lift there, a reference to that older movie. But yeah, right away we get just kind of the offbeat humor from this beginning where punches the mirror and then later it cuts to them at a convenience store and steve is narrating saying yeah he didn't do anything about the cut he just wrapped it in a dirty t-shirt and then we see him passing out at the convenience store their good friend mike who's played by jason siegel in one of his earliest roles and he's just this total nerd looking kid but we find out later he's just super hardcore he just beats the shit out of everybody but he's wearing glasses and like a Polo. He looks like Buddy Holly, a gigantic Buddy Holly. Yeah, he's a huge Buddy Holly. <laughs> he's also just like very sweet and nice, you know, to the convenience store lady. He's just like, oh, he'll be okay. But thank you. <laughs> like, he's just like overtly nice compared and contrasted to Steve-O, who's got the blue hair, a razor blade on his chain necklace, and got Bob with his mohawk and green jacket and everything. So I love the characters in this movie. Like they're they're all really unique and really fun, and it's a really funny comedy amongst some of the deeper themes and 
philosophy that they get into like later in the film. But I'd say this first 30 minutes of this movie is just to me like golden one laugh after another, almost ironically poking fun at this punk scene and these different characters. And we get to meet like the different tribes and things. I just still really love this movie, man. Something that I really enjoyed too is that even though it's the 90s, it's in your face, it's punk rock and anarchy. It's not like obnoxiously in your face. Like he's doing a lot of dynamic camera stuff and editing, but it's never like boo, 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 like someone is, you know, it's just punching you with celluloid, which I appreciated. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's actually technique to what he's doing to where it's not uh, let's let's say like a Michael Bay action scene from the mid 2000s. It doesn't look or feel that way. It's clever in the way that it's shot and some of the editing, you know, just the almost like staccato like jump cuts here and there and flashbacks and handoffs. One thing that I really enjoyed was Bob's monologue about acid, where he starts talking about, you know, Napoleon, man, like, you know, he died from arsenic in his hair, you know, and all this stuff. He starts talking to uh, Steve-O about acid. Steve-O is narrating the whole film. He brings us into this moment. But then Bob starts narrating this moment, how they're good for Sean. You know, Sean was uh, selling acid the other day. And, and then he starts narrating this whole scene. We cut back to seeing Devin Sawa, who plays this young punk. He's got, you know, the huge green spikes and he's got uh, these like orange mittens on his hands. <laughs> they're like oven mitts. <laughs> like, yeah, they look like oven mitts. Uh, and he's got like this white you know, long sleeve knit, almost like Long John t-shirt on. But yeah, he's selling acid to the mods who are another group that they interact with. And usually the punks and the mods apparently fight a lot. They get into spats, as Steve-O says. But uh, John the mod is their good friend. He's like the character that flows between the tribes. They call him a diplomat. And so, you know, the mods are these guys and I guess they're trying to hawk 1950s like a noir look, you know, where they they ride around on the scooters and they have like the trench coats and the suits and like the bowler hats and stuff or the fedoras. And uh, I love the line where John the mods like nice spikes, man. And Devin saw is like nice fucking suit. <laughs> it's just like. Uh, the dialogue in this, that probably doesn't do it justice, but I, it just pops. It's just like every, almost every line in this to me is just sharp and, and lands really well. And it's just funny. It's just well written. Did you model some of your hand movements after Sean the Beggar in the early 2000s? Because I swear the way that he was moving his hands around reminded me of you back then. Maybe unconsciously. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, Sean the Beggar, this character, it's just one of those that has always stuck with me. Just probably my favorite part of this movie, a, a highlight for sure, is just the scenes that we see him in. He's just in, in a couple of scenes throughout the movie. Love this moment between him and John the Mod. Uh, he's kind of taunting some of the other mods. And after that, uh, he asks John, he's like, your mom's still driving us to soccer practice, right? <laughs> yeah, 4 p.m. <laughs> I just, you know, those little throwaway lines are just like genius, you know, just just throw that in there. And it just says so much about these characters. And it's so funny kind of poking fun at them, too. It's like they're supposed to be these hardcore punks, you know, and they're just dressed up in these crazy outfits. But their mom is still driving to soccer practice. Yeah. And we should probably say, too, this Salt Lake City is obviously a very conservative kind of square town. But we have all these little subgroups here that don't totally get along and John the Mod is kind of like the peacekeeper between them but we've got the mods who were like British mods riding around on little scooters with their little British mods outfits and then you have the Nazi punks who everyone hates 
and you've got right. the rednecks that we already talked about. Does it wednecks like uh like Bugs Bunny would? And we've got yeah. the hardcore kids that we only see in the montage and the new wave kids who everyone beats up that we also only see in the montage. But I really appreciated that this movie goes against what every college English teacher tells you, which is don't introduce too many characters too quickly, because this mm. entire movie is really just Matthew Lillard introducing you to new characters for right. an hour and 37 minutes. I mean, up until the end of this movie, they are still introducing new people. And it kind of goes with the anarchy themes, really. The structure of the movie and a lot of the things that it does, it is very much in line with anarchy, but it still works. There's a cohesion to it, and I don't think the movie's perfect. I don't even think that I would call it a great film, but there's a cohesion on everything that's going on to where even though it's kind of arrhythmic in its flow, there's still a special rhythm. It's a unique rhythm to this film that I definitely appreciate I agree. I'd see all that too, and I think it really does work. I think the editing is really smart, the writing is really smart, just how it kind of seamlessly goes back and forth between different moments. I mean, you got lots of different time jumps where we have, you know, Steve O in the present, then we jump back to Steve O in the past, and then different stories being told by different characters. Yeah, it doesn't stick to like your normal script format, but I think that's one of the things I find really appealing about it that makes it very energetic and exciting. And if we were being introduced to all these different characters and they were just kind of flat and boring, like, you know, it seemed like a lot of them are in the sequel, just uh, really couldn't recapture the specialness of this movie and these different characters. You just it just feels like these are all characters that the writer must have known or known some form of and they all feel very realistic even though, you know, sometimes it does feel like a condensed movie version of these type of people and, you know, almost like a caricature, but even the caricatures are just really funny and work really well for this kind of offbeat comedy. And you really find when you finish the film, when you get to the end, and especially on rewatches, that there actually was a sort of structure here, because really what the underlying story is, is that Steve-O is kind of having his perspective challenged because he's just graduated college. So he goes to college, but his rebellion is that he goes to to Utah and goes to like the hometown college, basically, despite his dad. Oh, yeah. Who is an Ivy League graduate lawyer. His parents are divorced. There's a great scene right when he graduates high school where he kind of tells his parents off, but they love each other still and they still <laughs> get along. Yeah. His dad's played by Christopher McDonald, who's like the ultimate 90s square, who's always facing off against Adam Sandler, it feels like. Right. He will always be known to me as Shooter McGavin from <laughs> Happy Gilmore. <laughs> like, that's right. That's what his name was. Like when I was recalling this movie, I was like, oh yeah, Shooter McGavin's in this <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let's talk about that scene real quick, because that's probably one of my favorite scenes, too. Eventually, I want to jump back to the scene with Sean out in the snow. But since you were talking about the parents, so we jump back in time to Steve-O when he's 18. He's got this giant blue mohawk and this you know leather studded jacket. He just looks insane. And I love the scene with the parents and the dialogue here is just super fun. 
Christopher McDonald, he says at one point, this rebellion phase you're going through, you know, we respect it. Trying to play like cool, square, just oblivious dad. He does it perfectly in this movie. Uh, I love his line where he says, the statement you're saying about the American Indian with the Mohawk, I'm baffled. (laughs) You know, we're hip, we're cool, but these guys on the East Coast are never going to get this. (laughs) Just like he, he never lets on that he's like in on the joke. I think that's why I love his acting so much. Like he's always playing that dick and that square of a guy but he just plays it so straight and he wants his son to think he's cool too that was my favorite part is he he still wants his kid to think he's cool even though he's trying to guide him toward being a lawyer because we find out Lillard when he went to college got like a 4.0 he says he cheated but his dad still points out well good grades were still important to you his dad wants him to go to law school and be like him but You get like yeah. this delusion there too, where he's like, you could still fight for causes. Me and my friends, we, we ended Vietnam, which of course is, is delusional. The hippies that eventually became lawyers didn't actually end the Vietnam War. You right. know, the U.S. just <laughs> ran out of money and were losing and couldn't fight anymore. But that's a, something he tells himself to justify his square existence. I love that he's trying to tell Lillard that he can do the same thing, which really comes around to the ending that we'll get to. But Christopher McDonald, man, so good. Yeah, I mean, the whole point of the scene is basically his parents are totally inept. You know, he's turned 18. They can't control him. They can't squash his dreams or what he plans to do at this point. They have no power in this moment. And, you know, later we get Steve-O's monologue here where he just goes off on him. And it's so funny, but so cathartic, too. You know, it's just everything you might want to say to your parents when you're just this young, rebellious punk. I am the future. I am the future of this great nation which you, Father, so arrogantly saved this world for. Look, I I have my own agenda. Harvard, out, University, Utah, in. I'm gonna get a 4.0 in damage. I love you guys. Don't get me wrong. It's all about this. But for the first time in my life, I'm 18 and I can say, fuck you! Steven, I didn't, I didn't sell out, son. I bought in. Keep that in mind. And it's all Lillard, too. It's, it's like the total Lillard. Matthew Lillard experience, man. Oh, for sure. This guy has shown over the years to be a great actor. There's definitely a difference between like a Tom Cruise or you know, one of these tentpole movie actors that's making $25 million a movie and kind of an, an actor like Lillard or say like Robert Patrick, who went on a USO tour with Lillard, who played like the T-1000. Like they're both really good, really well-respected actors who are always in good stuff. In fact, Robert Patrick was with Annabeth Gish, who was in this movie in the X-Files, and they were great together. Oh, and okay. I can make so many weird connections with people in this movie because a lot of these people worked again and stuff. Yeah. He's more like this. I don't want to say every man actor because he's such himself and he's so good in everything he's in. But it's more like this guy just has a craft down. And I've never seen a bad performance from him. He was in the show called The Bridge on FX. That wasn't a great show, but he's this alcoholic TV reporter And he and his reporter are getting too close to, like, these drug lords. So they come and threaten him and his partner. And the drug lord lets it slip that his reporter partner apparently attempted suicide at some point. And you can tell he has had, like, a lot of empathy and love and care for for this person. 
for this reporter partner, but he hasn't really shown it because he's kind of a jackass. But he just like shows this pain and fear in his eyes for like a split second. I've never seen another actor do anything like that with their eyes just Mm. so subtly and so briefly and convey so much fear and pain. It like shook me. I had to pause the show. He's that Mm, good of an actor. So it's really fun to see him just go nuts and just give you the full wacky Lillard in this movie. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, he gives you the full wacky, too. But speaking of pain and fear, there's a lot of that here, too, where wrestling with these inner demons, he's wrestling with his personal philosophy and beliefs. And yeah, you know, there's just the the goofy over the top punk stuff. But yeah, there's there's a whole performance here, too. And you know, I was reading how he said this was one of his only roles where he really got to carry a film and that he's, you know, really proud of this performance, really went all out for it. And it shows, I mean, this, if to me, you know, looking at his filmography, this is definitely the one to be proud of. I haven't seen a whole lot of his later stuff. You know, I'm more familiar with his 90s work and all the movies he was in with Freddie Prince Jr. seemed like they were in a gajillion movies together. But yeah, this is definitely the standout to me. Like, I'll always remember Matthew Lillard for Steve-O and SLC Punk. get multiple monologues throughout the film from mainly Steve-O. We had the one from Heroin Bob where he talks about Sean, the beggar. You know, he's selling acid. He runs through these sprinklers being chased by a cop. Uh, he's got hits of acid in his pocket. So we get this great shot of him running. You got the 1969 song by the Stooges playing. And this zoom in on his leg, there's this cool x-ray shot of like the muscle of his leg as the (laughs) acid is soaking in. Always love that. But then probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie is where Bob is narrating. It flashes back to him going to see Sean at his house and he's sitting outside on a chair in the snow. We used to quote this this part all the time, me and my buddy Sean. I I think it's perfect. Uh, Bob walks up and Sean's like, are you him? Bob looks around, smiles, kind of goes with it. He's like, yeah, I'm I'm him. Sean's like, Jesus, have I sinned or am I going to heaven? (laughs) And he's like, wait, you're not Jesus, you're Bob. (laughs) How are you doing that, man? (laughs) How am I doing what? Walking on water. <laughs> just just like the the facial expressions on Devin Sawa here, just his comedic timing, his got the crazed uh, he's got this crazed look on his face, but he's got the green spikes that are all kind of like deflated now because he's just all whacked out on acid. I don't know, just it's just such a goofy scene. But uh we used to say all the time where he talks about, you know, Satan's in the house. He killed my mom and turned her into a bull. <laughs> and, and then it jumps to an earlier scene where Sean and, and his mother comes into the kitchen. He's got like this huge kitchen knife and she's wearing this floral dress with these spike uh, shoulder pads, like, you know, 80s kind of look to it. And he just freaks out and starts chasing her with the knife. And then he like sees, I guess, what, what do you call it? Like a fawn? <laughs> I guess it's supposed to be sa- Satan. It's Mr. Tumnus from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's just got this 
crazy frenetic editing there and it jumps back where the cops have been called and they pull up in front of the house and Bob is just kind of like in surrender with his hands up and Sean's yelling, I've been saved, I've been saved. So I don't know, it's just like this little like short film, like vignette thrown in the middle of this movie that I always thought was really fun. And Devin Sow is another actor that I really, really douchebaggingly dissed back in the day just because my sister had a crush on him in the 90s. So I was like, well, he must suck because everybody that she likes sucks. Sorry, (laughs) Arissa. But then I watched, obviously not this movie because I told you I just watched it for the first time a week ago, but I watched Final Destination. Uh, right after it came out which he's in and i enjoyed it but then whenever it came out on dvd i rented it and he does a commentary and he was so funny and like a normal dude not like like douche bro dude he's making fun of himself like his he's making fun of his performance he's talking about how he's put on 40 pounds since he filmed the movie and i was like wait a minute this dude's awesome why did i diss this guy when i didn't know it man that was my biggest problem growing up was stuff that i didn't have any experience or like the right to talk about. I was like, well, that sucks, obviously. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad that you've learned your ways and you've come around on Devon Solo because I don't know what it is about him. I've always loved him. And it's probably especially from this movie because I just feel like he gets this character down perfect. You know, it's just this little bit character, but he plays it so well and so comedic. There's a scene later uh, they run into him and he's uh, begging out on the street. This is another time where it jumps into his perspective as he's telling a story about him going to apply for a job. And he walks into this women's retail store wearing like a denim jacket that says, fuck you written on it. Like, and he just looks crazy. Like, I don't know. They obviously put a ton of makeup on his face and make him look pale and just strung out, but he just has this kind of like glazed over look and he's smiling like a maniac. And I love how he's he's standing like six feet away from this woman who's on the phone at the checkout counter and he just screams at her. Hey, (laughs) she drops the phone and he's like, I called about the job. (laughs) She's like, you called about the job. I don't know. Just just a hilarious scene. He ends up like calling her out on having a bad attitude, even though she's just like scared out of her mind. Like, who who is this? And terrified for her life. Just yeah, exactly. And he's like, I don't need your job because I've got integrity. (laughs) He's like, this is a bad way to start a working relationship. The hard cut of him being on the street as a beggar saying, I can't get any work to his crazed face in the storefront of this place where he applies for the job. To me, was the hardest laugh in the movie. I, I, <laughs> it was so good. Walking in with that shirt. He looks insane. He looks insane. And then as he walks out after he's made this huge scene and he's just completely oblivious about like why he's failed at this, he tells Steve-O and them back in the present, like, man, it's just impossible to get a job out there. <laughs> How are you supposed to do it? Right. It's so good. I love him in this. Well, I've been up all night again. Party time wasting is too much fun. Then I step back. Uh, so many great characters. So let's move on to another monologue. Kind of the one of the bigger monologues in the film from Steve-O where he's in the mall. And he's talking about posers and who started punk rock. Yes. So this is really a moment where we find out that Steve-O doesn't really, he can't really see himself for who he really is because he's talking about music. And what he basically says is, 
music's not really punk, it's just music. And he's dissing all these other subgroups, especially UK punks who say anarchy in the UK. And he's talking about fashion, and what he can't realize is he is that person. He's already wearing this punk rock uniform, and I love it because it's high energy from Lillard. It's funny all the stuff he's saying, but at the same time, if you have any level of perception, you see that this guy isn't really seeing himself or who he really is. He's kind of making an ass out of himself by saying all this stuff when he himself looks like mall skate punk. <laughs> yeah, mall skate punk. That's a subgenre they didn't get into into the film. I think that's like a, a couple years later. Right, yeah, like early 2000s. I feel like we were the mall skate punks at some point (laughs) but yeah i mean you know to be fair he is calling out posers in utah who are talking in a british twang who say (laughs) anarchy in the uk is like you don't know anything about the uk like (laughs) and then you know he talks about how they put on the accent and you know to get the ladies and they'll walk up to some girl and say hey mistress do you fancy a shag (laughs) (laughs) I forgot how much he narrates this movie and how much he's just talking straight to the camera like it's a person, you know, breaking the fourth wall. But yeah, I agree with you. You know, later we see him kind of realize, hey, I am just wearing this punk uniform and I'm just a poser like these guys that I've called out. (laughs) Growing up, it was always just this fun moment where he, he dips into the history of punk a little bit, you know, like the argument of, who started punk rock? Was it the Sex Pistols in the UK? Was it the Ramones in New York City? And, you know, he argues, I don't care who started it, but we did it harder. We did it faster. We did it with more love. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of bridges us into the concert scene, you know, where it's his exhibit A, as he calls it. We go to this concert where they're moshing, where we see this British punk band playing and they're, you know, they're all moshing. This turns into Steve-O having sex with this girl, Sandy, who's like, if you're a man, you take me now. And they, you know, it's just like so absurd, but kind of over the top. But it just goes with the chaotic moment of everyone just flipping out. And I don't know, maybe this really did happen at punk shows back in the eighties. I don't know. Or I mean, somebody comments to Bob, you know, weren't you with Sandy? And he's like, no, that was last week, dude. You know, (laughs) it's like now I'm into Trish. So uh, later we meet Trish, who's kind of this bohemian queen. She's always changing hair color in like every scene. You know, she's got like a different wig on, I guess, from moment to moment. And Bob calls her like a poet. You know, (laughs) she's just saying these very philosophical, very pseudo deep things to the other characters. That are really asinine. But I mean, to them, it's like the deepest nuggets of truth. Right. But watching it now, it's like, was the film aware of that? Or was that just like a blind spot? (laughs) on the writing (laughs) at one point cops bust up their concert and she's like the police what an untidy little group of fascists mormons (laughs) run the state and that is the state of things (laughs) it's like (laughs) back then like watching it as a teen i was like oh man that's so cool like you know calling the police fascists and stuff but (laughs) they kind of do throw that word around a lot in this it gets a little bit too much play but of course (laughs) you know depending on who you are mid 80s reagan era you know they've got like pictures of ronald reagan on their tv set with like swastikas on his oh this is a great time to mention this movie takes place in 1985 oh yeah by the way we should say that (laughs) by the way no i mean i mentioned it earlier but oh my bad uh, but yeah there there is uh, a lot of reference to them being in like the reagan era and, and rebelling against conservatism and everything 
but yeah, great concert scene. You know, we get Bob jumping up on the stage, getting the crap kicked out of him. And then, you know, this is where it's revealed that Mike, played by Jason Siegel, is just the total badass. You know, he just plows through everybody in the mosh pit, jumps on stage and like beats the crap out of the bouncer. We meet Mark, who's like their hilarious German friend, who's a psycho as well. And we get like a little side story with him pulling a gun on Steve-O and Bob because he thinks that they've stolen his pot and he's just this really like insane but lovable german guy that they drive around with and steal a car with and everything and this is really the moment where we kind of see the cracks in the facade of their belief system because they're not supposed to really care about stuff like relationships right like everything is just open it's total anarchy right he doesn't care about sandy but what does he do whenever he sees matthew lillard hooking up with her he immediately (laughs) starts a huge fight right and then you know later we get a scene where steve-o is supposed to have an agreement with sandy that it's just an open relationship no strings attached but he finds her having sex with another guy at another party and then just beats the crap out of that guy And that's kind of what tips them off that, hey, maybe all this crap I'm talking about anarchy and not giving an F, I'm just kind of full of shit, you know, because I'm following my natural instincts, fighting. And he goes through this whole spiel about like how fighting represents power and power represents the government. Government is war, you know, and if you're anarchist then you know you're against government and everything so it's kind of a reductionist view like the line of thought that he takes but it gets him there to the point where he starts to realize he's contradicting himself and you know some of the things that he's spouting don't quite hold up this is really for me again a reminder of how different this movie is because after he sees his girlfriend cheat and he freaks out goes nuts Bob's got Trish and everything is really happy for them. I said the right, I didn't say the actor's name right. I said the character's name that time. Yeah, that's right. So heroin Bob has this great thing going on with Trish and everything is happy with them. And he's all glowing about how much he loves Utah and how it's home, how he loves Salt Lake City, which Matthew Lillard has an issue with. And they get into a little argument there. But in a lot of movies, they would get in like some huge fight because Bob's found this stable relationship and Matthew Lillard isn't happy. And then something would happen later on that would cause them to artificially make up. And that's not really what happens here. He just kind of yell, gets some frustrations out on Bob and then they're cool again. They're goofing around just like they were before. Which Honestly, that's how a friendship really is, right? I mean, when you're really friends with someone, you might get pissed at each other, but it's always like momentary. It's not like you quit talking for three weeks and then some great major act happens which causes you to have this huge apologetic moment at least not for me i mean i don't know maybe that's that's how things have been for you but i doubt it to me that was more more true life so i enjoyed that but bob and trish have a love interest in mind for our boy steve-o and he's just resigned to it he says you know what i'm gonna fall in love with this person whoever they are i really love that scene where he meets brandy you know just kind of jumping towards the end at this point you know he's gone through multiple concerts he's got they've gone through multiple parties he's kind of question his personal beliefs and he's kind of at this crossroads where he feels like you know everybody's leaving everybody is changing around him and so like what am i going to do who am i you know let me figure my stuff out and we are introduced to brandy at this party played by summer phoenix and i think uh, she's just really great 
in this role, really quiet presence, but she makes him really question his line of thinking and his fashion for one. You know, the the main topic that she brings up at the party is why do you dress like this? You know, why do you go out of your way to look like you do? And she's like, you know, aren't you supposed to be rebelling against society or something? Because you look like you're wearing a uniform. You know, you look like a punk. This is like a tribe. This is like conformity, even though you're supposedly a nonconformist. You know, he asked her, what does rebellion mean then? And she says, rebellion is in the mind. It's who you are. You can't create that. Oh, so good. I really love that. Like for all the other stuff in the movie that I felt like could be a little reductionist for like simplifying the different debates they have. And for the most part, I feel like they do a good job of it. But there's some scenes like where he's debating with his friend Chris and he's like, things go from order to chaos, anarchy. You know, it's like, uh, that's, a you know, even for this character, that's a little simplistic of a view, you know, and then like Chris comes back and is like, oh, no, man, they go from order to chaos to order, you know, because like things die, but then they come back as a flower or whatever. And so like, I mean, I don't, I, I don't mind that scene, but I feel like here with this moment from Brandy, like she is like the the wisest character of the film like she's just speaking as it is she's not pretending to be like a certain kind of person she doesn't fit into any tribe you know she's just like i don't care how you dress like do what you want but like i'm just posing a theory but i really connected with that like it goes back to thoughts you know growing up that i've had about you know joining a group if you join a group of nonconformists like punks then you're really not a nonconformist you're just found <laughs> a different tribe you know like a different normal And so like, what does that mean in the end about you as an individual? Like she says, he's just wearing a uniform, but like if you, who you are, like is a rebellious person on the inside and like, it's in your mind and like how you think, then like, that's what's important. It's not like how you dress or like, you know, how you fit into one group or another. Yeah. And you know, I've been kicking myself in the balls this entire episode for giving you so much (laughs) crap about liking this movie back in the day, but now I'm just going to toot on my own horn for as long as you'll let me talk because the punk ideals were things that I first became aware of in high school. I talked about nihilism so much in that alien three episode. <laughs> yes, I won't you did. do that again here. <laughs> I promise I'm not about I to do that I knew you would again. get something out of this though, being the nihilist <laughs> that you are. And I first heard punk music around that time too. And this is probably mid to late 90s where I started getting into this stuff. And a lot of those ideals resonated with me because, you know, I grew up in rural South Louisiana where most of the kids I grew up with were, we don't have rednecks here, we have coon asses, that's what they're called. (laughs) But, you know, let's say very conservative people from very conservative families, but not like wealthy, like, you know, you would think about in certain ways, you know, it's like kind of a poor farming area where all the kids are carving the South will rise again into their desks, right? Which (laughs) I always thought was really stupid. And I always thought like, why do you want the South to rise again? Do you want to have slaves again? You guys are all awful idiots and I hate all of you, right? (laughs) Like I, I had a lot of these punk ideas early on and that the system that is here, I don't like it and I think that it's wrong and I want to rebel against it by not having those personal beliefs. And just full disclosure, because I'm just going to toot my horn so hard. You know, whenever I went to register in the courthouse in Poinkipi Parish to vote, you know, I registered as a Democrat. And I was like, yeah, Ooh, screw yeah. these guys, man. I don't care, man. I'm going to vote for Al Gore. Everyone can <laughs> suck it. And, <laughs> and I dug punk music 
But also, you know, I kind of had this contradictory thing going where, you know, I did have this Christian faith and I actually, you know, I'm still very religious, but the church that I grew up in was very conservative and I did not like it. I mean, I told my mom when I was a little kid or when I was 10, when we started going there, I don't like it here. I don't like the stuff they're saying from the pulpit. I feel like it contradicts the stuff that Jesus said, because I really think a lot of the things that he said were pretty anarchal for the system that he was in, you know, rebelling against that system. So for me, whenever I found that there were Christian punks, and there are a lot of different sides to that, there there are Christian punk bands where the members are just like conservative people with Christian conservative views who like to play fast music and sing about girls. It's nothing about actual punk ethos, for sure. That's right. (laughs) That's right. But, uh, you know, there are other bands and other things within that scene where, like, I'll bring up this band called Craig's Brother. Where the right. guy the guy said my my beliefs are Christian anarchy and he would write all these screeds about how he thought that Jesus was the ultimate anarchist and I always thought that stuff was so cool but you know what what did I wear Jordan what was my hairstyle the same as now I never got into that for the fashion I wore t-shirts and jeans just like I do now when I'm not at work where yeah. I have to dress fancier because now I'm an accountant I didn't sell out I bought in just like bought, the dad just says, like yeah. the dad says yeah I didn't sell out son I bought in my hair was the same but yeah I like what she says there because I do feel like oh man this is gonna be divisive I don't care though I do feel like a lot of people whenever they're born and they grow up through something they don't question it they just say well, this is what my mommy and daddy taught me, or this is what the people in charge taught me. So that's right. That's right. And you know what? I'm going to drop my one F-bomb for this episode. Fuck that. I mean, I've never felt that way. (laughs) Everything that's ever happened, I have questioned. And I think that that is the ultimate punk ethos, is to just question what's taught to you, question what's shown to you, and not in like a stupid QAnon way where you just believe whatever you want magically. Just look at the facts. (laughs) Look at what's out there. Whenever my mom wanted to hold me out for evolution in the fifth grade and I read it and I was like, ah, oh, this seems real. This actually, this actually sounds more like, like a religious process in a way evolution than just things happening. Cause usually in life things go through an evolutionary process. You don't just magically become one person one day to the next you grow and evolve. So this makes sense to me. So, you know, I just didn't tell my mom when we went over that stuff in class so that I could learn <laughs> just it. Just don't tell right? mom. Right. Yeah, exactly. So for me, I was not born the way to conform. That was not not ever who I was, but I'm rambling now. All that to say, I'm awesome. I'm awesome. I've always been awesome. I'm awesomest, (laughs) except when I told you that this movie was stupid without ever having watched it. That was dumb. (laughs) You're you're a pretty great guy, Nick. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks for that background into your life. No, I'm I'm not going to edit any of that out either. (laughs) Don't. Yeah. True punk way. Just you you can't go weak at the end there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Not like Steve-O who pusses out. No, <laughs> I, I wanted to get into that a little bit because, you know, bringing it back to the film on one hand, growing up, watching this movie as a young punk it's hard not to be a little let down by the ending where you're like oh man like he gets rid of his his blue spikes and you know he goes off to be a lawyer but okay yeah you can do more damage from the inside i guess all right cool but you know there's a little let down there where as a kid it is almost kind of calling you out in a way like if you are a young punk and you dress a certain way because like your friends do and i grew up like skateboarding and you know, into punk music and stuff. So I, I was never like tattoos and leather jackets and, and crazy hair or whatever, but definitely was into probably like a, a lighter degree of like, you know, the pop punk, you know, like we said, the Christian punk and I'm a skater kid and stuff back in the day. I think I did dye my hair blue at one point. Uh, no lie. It looked cool. It, it looked pretty good. 
All right, all right, I'll take it. You pulled it off. This film is uh, kind of iconoclastic and bold in a way because you know it's a punk movie speaking to a punk audience, and it's basically saying, "Hey, look at this guy. He's just a poser, and he admits to it, and he grows up, and he moves on. And hey, guess what? By definition, you're all a bunch of posers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> everybody watching this who thinks they're so punk, you're a poser. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's all just a fashion. So maybe that rubbed us the wrong way when we were kids. First part, so awesome, you know, because you've got all these guys beating up the rednecks and partying and everything. But then you've got the deeper philosophical questions about anarchy and personal beliefs coming undone. That really hits home for me. They did a good job with that. And Matthew Lillard definitely helps sell it. And it's a really good script. It is kind of tied up neatly in the end where he's just like, you know, I'm just a poser and it's just a phase. I'll go be a lawyer, do the damage from the inside. You know, earlier in the film, Steve-O kind of chides Bob for having like these neat, nice packaged ideas. And it's just he's kind of a reductionist and puts everything to these nice phrases or whatever. And in a way, the I could argue the film does that a little bit here in the end. I mean, I think he does realize, like you said, that he is kind of putting on and he is one of those posers, one of those, you know, you know he's, he is wearing the uniform like Brandy calls him out on. But yeah, it, the ending there, it does feel like a little too clean in some ways. I like Brandy's comment a lot more. It feels a little bit more complex and thoughtful. And like I said, I really feel like she's the smartest person in the film talking about, you know, rebellion being a thing of the mind and it doesn't matter what you dress like. I mean, I guess you could argue that Steve-O is, he is still rebelling against the society and he still has that like within his nature, but he's just kind of shedding the fashion, you know, and shedding like the trendiness of like looking a certain way uh, by shaving his head and wearing a suit at the end. You know, which actually I recently shaved my head. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, I feel like I've just come full circle with this film. I grew up loving one half of it and kind of slightly being let down by the end. But, you know, now I'm a librarian. I live in the suburbs. I have four kids. I'm not the young skater punk I used to be, Nick, but that's okay. You know, I'd probably hate that kid if I saw him now. <laughs> Be like, get off my lawn. But- hey, now that when I saw that kid back in the day, I thought this dude's cool. He's way cooler than the people I grew up with. Besides a few of them that I still like that are cool. So I'm gonna be his friend. That's true. I was I was cooler, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know, twenty plus year friendship now. But I do think there's a lot of wisdom in this ending because yeah. that's something that I've kind of learned through time. Unfortunately, I didn't learn it over like one year like he did. I had all these these rebellious tendencies, and a lot of them were good, right? Like I don't agree with the conservative philosophies of this church I grew up in, but I do believe in you know these other religious aspects of my religion. So I'm going to rebel against that and I'm going to find my own path, which I did, which is great. You know, that's been wonderful for me. I'm going to not like what's mainstream just because it's mainstream, you know, which was douchey when I did it to you. But, you know, when I got a little more mature in that, it was more of I want to look at everything closely and see what I actually do like and make my own taste based upon what I prefer, which is great. But the thing that kind of bit me in the butt was I said, you know what, I'm not going to get like a typical job and like, you know, get a typical degree because forget that, like I'm cool and I'm a rebel. I majored in creative writing and got a film minor and I love those things and it was so fun and it's so cool, but I did not do that to get a career in those things. I just did it because it was fun and I wanted to rebel against getting a degree in things people were telling me to do. The main one being accounting because I was accounting services student worker and 
now, you know, all these years later, I'm almost 40. I've been an accountant for about five years and I kind of went through a working wilderness to get to that point where I was finally like, you know what? It's not selling out to get a job to support my family. I can still be myself and do this and still, I could still affect greater change in the ways that I want to if, you know, I can actually pay my mortgage and (laughs) put food on the table. So there's, there's definitely something to that, that I wish that I had learned Steve-O's lesson Whenever I was, I guess he's supposed to be 21 or 22. I wish I had learned it then because I could have switched majors at the end there (laughs) and maybe (laughs) still majored in creative writing because I love it and still majored in in film because I love it. But that accounting degree that people were always telling me to get because they knew like, hey, you're good at that. And that's the whole thing, right? Like I can still do all the stuff that I majored in. I can still write. I can talk about movies with you and greatly enjoy it. But I've got the job that that I'm good at, that I can do well, that I have the natural talent for too, that I can also do and not rebel against that just because it's quote unquote like, I don't know. I don't want to say the American dream, but that's something that I rebelled hard against. And, yeah. you know, you're, and we're both living it now, right? I mean, yeah, for sure. you're, you're a super cool librarian. You got a cool wife and cool kids, which is something that you and I probably both. And, you know, I've, I'm married to a cool woman and I've got a cool kid. You know, I live in a, in a suburb, basically. Well, no, I live in the city. I live in Baton Rouge. I don't live in a suburb. I'm, I'm going to say don't slicker. Do yeah, city slicker. But, you know, like we I don't want to say we bought in like Christopher McDonald said, but we, we <laughs> you found don't sound bad. That square. <laughs> yeah, but you know, we we found a path. I feel like we're still being true yeah, to ourselves, even though sure. you know we have careers that are you know helping us to support other people. We can still be punk on the inside. You know, that's right. That's what Just it's like all we about. Always were. Well, one thing talking about that that I connected with and saw in this film within myself was, you know, just like you. There's also this tendency growing up in Baton Rouge and, you know, smaller city in the South was just like, you know, you got to hate your city, just like these guys hate Salt Lake. You know, you just got to move away, find somewhere cool. You know, this is like the worst place on earth, like anywhere is better than here. And that's kind of the attitude that Steve-O has. And then we see Bob slowly kind of embrace it. And, uh, you know, he has that big fight with Steve-O where he says, you know, like, things aren't so bad, man. You know, like me and Trish, we were just like smoking cigarettes and hanging out and watching the birds and shit. (laughs) And then, you know, just thought, well, you know, Salt Lake ain't so bad. It's home. And Steve-O gets all offended. You know, he's like, F your home. This will never be my home. That's kind of the attitude that I had growing up in Baton Rouge. Just like, I want to get out of here. This place sucks. You know, like you, I don't want to work like a boring nine to five. I want to go on some great adventure, be a rebel and all this stuff. At one point, their good friend, Mark, uh, the German guy, is uh, coming by the head shop to say goodbye. And he says, I'm going down to Miami, but I'll be back. And Bob says, why would you ever want to come back here, man, to a place like this? He's like, it's just like any other place, you know, people, houses, cars, it's all the same. That kind of reminded me or or stuck out to me is like, you know, that's a thought that I had too that kind of helped me get over that mindset of like, oh, I need to move away. I need to go somewhere cool. It's like, you know, no matter where you are, like the thing that really makes a place worth living is the people that you surround yourself with. Because like, yeah, a place might have cool venues or or nice, uh, you know, outings or activities or whatever. But for me, being the people person that I am, like, it was always about like, who am I friends with and who, who do I get to hang out with? So, 
you know, eventually like you find your people and you live there, you know, like if it's your family that you grow up with or if it's your friends or, you know, whoever it is, like, you know, you got to find your people and just surround yourself with positive influences and people that are going to like lift you up. So that's what I've found. And then, you know, most of my, most of all my good friends moved away except for you, Nick, but you know, I'm still here. We're still here. Same man. They all left. They left us, dude. That's right, dude. They all left us, but you know, we're still here. We're holding it down. And like you said, we've got families and everything that, uh, that we've settled into and that we found our place, you know? So I've made peace with that. And yeah, that was just something cool to see reflected in this movie. Some of the characters, uh, finding that as well. So yeah, I dig it. Very much so, man. You're making me want to give this a higher score than I was going to originally give it. Oh, well, let's get into it. What What's your score? So when I was watching it, and here's something I haven't brought up at all, but I will bring it up now because I have to. There's another movie that came out before this that is in my 90s top five. It's a Danny Boyle movie called Train Spotting. Yeah. That's a great movie, and it has a lot of the same beats as this one and a lot of the same narrative techniques as this one. And even the voiceover is kind of similar. And I don't want to say that SLC Punk is derivative of it because it does have a a singular vision throughout. But it does, to me, feel like a less prestigious version of that, which I hate to say that is so douchey because I really (laughs) do like this movie a lot. Yeah, I do feel like the formlessness, even though I, I feel like in a way that anarchy and the way that it's told does kind of fit the theme it does kind of leave the movie kind of floating a little bit too much more than i'd like at certain moments but i mean i feel like it comes back around to where it's okay like it's not like it just floats off into nothing so i I really enjoy it but i i don't know if i can get myself out of the seven out of ten that i was set on before we started talking though you're really making me want to bump it up to an eight like really badly no i I hear you there's definitely a lot of train spotting vibes i would argue too that i don't see this movie getting made without the success of things like train spotting or even it makes me think of pulp fiction you know just the non-linear format uh it just feels like you know maybe the studio is hot for that kind of stuff like oh well, we can get some more of that indie money here because you know i don't see this kind of thing being put out with these kind of actors and this kind of cast involved now it's just uh hard hard to imagine also just the pervasive language uh like <laughs> it's mentioned in the the r rating that i always laughed at growing up Cause yeah, I did watch this and then feel like I started like cursing like a sailor because they, they curse so much. <laughs> we probably curse more in this episode quoting it than any other episode. So then all the other ones combined yeah, for sure. But no, I, I hear what you're saying, and you know, I don't think it is a perfect movie. There's moments that I think drag and that I don't like so much. Like for some reason, I've always hated the dropping acid in the park with Sandy scene. There's like a scene ripped off from uh, Terminator Two where it's like an explosion in the background of the landscape. And I think it's just the footage from Terminator 2. Yeah, it's just the footage. Yeah, for sure. But I don't know, that scene always like weirded me out and like doesn't really do anything for me. And it's all edited crazy. And there's like the sad piano music in the background. I just like, I don't know why that scene is just like always rubbed me the wrong way. It doesn't work for me. And it's just kind of like a harsh transition from some of the like the more comedic elements in the beginning. And then that's the first time we really get like the more melancholic aspect of his character and, you know, some of his questioning and everything. But I feel like they could have transitioned into that a little bit better and feels kind of really weirdly chopped up right there. But 
it moves on pretty quickly to go back into some great territory. Yeah, I'm a little higher on it than you. I, I gave it a four out of five or eight out of 10 on your scale. I just really love it. I think it'll always be classic to me. I really enjoyed rewatching it now and still find it hilarious. You know, there's just so much good dialogue in here. It's kind of like the way I feel about Airheads, just all those little lines <laughs> that I could just pick out from that movie and, and laugh over. Same thing here. It's just a lot of fun. There's so much dialogue and thankfully most of it is really good. And hey, you know, as much as I was maybe negatively comparing it to Train Spotting, you know, Train Spotting's got that famous shot in the bar where he speeds the footage up, but some people aren't moving. And this one, I feel like there's a really cool shot where Matthew Lillard is sitting with three friends at a restaurant booth. And then suddenly he starts talking to the camera because I, we didn't really mention this. He breaks the fourth wall like the entire movie. But he turns and looks at the camera and suddenly he's superimposed over the footage in the background. And it's like going on while he's moving around outside of it, which I thought was really, really unique and innovative and cool. So I don't want to give the impression that I think this is like a derivatively shot movie. There's a lot of cool stuff like that in there for sure. Yeah, yeah. There is a lot of interesting stuff with like the superimposed and talking to the camera, breaking the fourth wall where he's talking to the camera, but... The other, it's not like, you know, the characters are frozen in the background. Like you see sometimes when people break fourth wall, like the action is happening around him, but he'll be like talking to them. And then all of a sudden he'll be talking to the camera and they just kind of like keep existing, but they're kind of seem unaware of him uh, talking to this supposed other person from the point of view of the camera. But there is like one moment where he talks to uh, the girl, Jen, and he's talking about her. And then he like turns her head to look at the camera and he calls her the carnivore. She's like, this girl, if you meet her in a dark, deserted alley, she will bite your head off if she hasn't taken her medicine. She's a carnivore. And she looks at the <laughs> camera and she's like, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> I've always loved that moment. You know what I would have said if I had watched this movie back then was you know something that they taught us when I was in school. Basically, that a voiceover is true trash unless there's a really good version for it all of my professors were like voiceovers are trash you yeah. know when I, then i think about movies i really like like shawshank redemption one of my favorite movies ever maybe my favorite 90s movie that's got a voiceover and i can rationalize that as morgan freeman kind of rethinking over everything that's got him to the point where he's on the bus at the end and you know what with this movie i would have been so douchey about that had i watched it then and said why is there voiceover but you know what the voiceover it's really just him espousing his personal philosophy and what he's learned and not in like a Ryan Reynolds uh, mid-2000s comedy way, you know, where there's my boss, he sucks. There's my right. girlfriend, she's hot. It's not like that. It's <laughs> it's just a very natural thing. It's not oh, an yeah. unnatural, lazy voiceover. If anything, it was more work to make this voiceover work than it would have been if they had just told it straight with no voiceover. Oh, for sure. And Matthew Lillard puts so much into it, too, just from the, the writing from the the director, James Maradino, that he's giving to Lillard definitely helps it out. But just the passion that he puts into it, it's also just refreshing to hear our kind of more neutered environment in 2021. I don't think we would get a voiceover where a character is like, fuck this, you know, in the narration. <laughs> but just hearing him say like, you know, the F word multiple times not to just like you know be arbitrarily saying that you know saying the f word is cool or whatever but there is something kind of refreshing about him getting really into that f you know <laughs> and uh <laughs> you know at one point him saying he's realized after he's beat the crap out of this guy that anarchy is just stupid and he's just like fuck everybody and most of all fuck anarchy 
you know <laughs> so it's just like i don't know he just gets really into it and i appreciate that like you said it, it would have been easier to make this movie without all that but it's mostly narration and i forgot about that and i'm kind of that douche where i'm like i hate narration it really doesn't work. It drags the film down. But this is one of those cases where, especially with him breaking the fourth wall and, and talking to the camera so much and the back and forth characters telling stories and whatnot, it just it really works. And it's like the thing that carries the movie for me. I, I don't think this would be as high as a four out of five for me, if not for that personal, very unique style and the unique narration we get from Steve-O's character. For sure. Well, man, we talked for so long about this movie. I feel like we don't even have to talk about the sequel. I don't have to tell you about it. Oh, Let's just skip the trivia. No, man. No, you got to pay your dues, my friend. <laughs> but first, let's do our movie connection time, or we'll connect it back to Robin Hood, and then we can get into The Fallen Warrior. How's that sound? I'll give uh, you a, I'll give you a few moments. <laughs> let me peace. steal myself. Let me take right. some more Tums. I'll give you a few moments to prepare yourself. So... Well, just like our boys in SLC Punk, Robin Hood and his merry men are fighting against an impressive regime featuring some corrupt religious figures. Remember that fat bishop who gets defenestrated out of the window? Yes. So the enemy here is represented by the Mormons and the conservative rednecks and the fight against society and the police. You know, this is a main feature. Robin Hood features Christian Slater as well who was in an earlier film, Shake Favorite, Pump Up the Volume, which featured a fight against the man using punk music. So boom, my friend, there you go. Three connections in one. How you like them, app? You overachiever. That wasn't punk at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was great. That was I didn't really even good. do a movie connection because I don't care, man. Yeah. It's all Screw part that of the shit. system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ah, man. Okay, well, I'll talk about Punk's Dead. Tell your mind I'm stuck on this lovely girl Costing me a shame in all the world you sound so excited. You know, since you barely ever win trivia, you always make me watch the worst movies ever made. Because remember that time <laughs> I had to watch I had to watch the Point Break remake, and it was like, man, the thing that really made the first one was the director's vision, but really also the two stars of the movie and their great, incredible chemistry. Well, with this movie, Punk's Dead, SLC Punk 2, which it's really Punk's Dead first before it's SLC Punk 2. Right. It's the same writer and director of the original movie. It's James Marandino again. So you would think, okay, this guy knows what he's doing and he knows what he wants to do. You know what? I do know what he wants to do. I can tell. You can tell because he talked about how he was young and naive when he made the first one. All he wants to do is basically apologize for saying that he thinks punks are posers. And he does this by, Jordan, God, this movie sucks. Dude, it sucks so bad. It's so bad. I believe you. I watched 30 minutes of it. I couldn't stand it, man. I had to turn it off. Well, I watched it all the way through, and it was so bad, I had to immediately watch the original. And then I thought, well, crap, now I can't really remember Punk's Dead now. I need to watch Punk's Dead again. And I I couldn't even get 20 minutes into it again. It was so bad. Because with heroin Bob's son, which he apparently had with Trish, who is not played by Annabeth Gish here, she's played by... 
Oh, I forgot. I forgot who plays it her. Doesn't does it matter? matter? It doesn't no, matter. Does doesn't anything matter. matter after I watch this? It does this? matter that somehow they brought Heroin Bob back, played by Michael Gorgian again, and he's dead, like narrating the movie from the afterlife. And it's well, just... this is this is the problem with the movie, right? Or first of all, it is totally a mid two thousands Ryan Reynolds narration. Here's me. I'm Bob. I'm dead. There's my son. Look at him. It's awful, right? <laughs> it's so right? bad, dude. But the thing that sucks about it is, with the first SLC punk, Matthew Lillard gives the narration, and he's the main character, so he immediately makes you feel something for him. You know, generally, I think most people who watch the movie care about him. You know, you immediately feel like you know him, and you have a sense of who he is and what yeah. he's doing, and he's very magnetic and charming, even in his anarchy. But you don't get that here because Heroin Bob from the afterlife is doing the narration and his his son, Ross, who's like this weird goth kid who doesn't feel like a real person at all. We don't get that from him. He has you know some lines in the movie, but the whole time his dead dad is narrating it. So he already feels like a fake person that some old aging screenwriter wrote about what he thinks is a, a young person now. But right. you don't even get him narrating like Matthew Lillard did in the first movie. You have someone else talking about him so you have no connection to him and his douchey friend played by machine gun kelly and his his girlfriend who's not his girlfriend immediately which that it it sucks so bad man they go on this road trip like you said it's not shot on film it's like the most generic digitally looking movie it feels cheap there's a scene where they go to a punk rock show where the punk rock show in slc punk feels so natural and so real even though it's so over the top and heightened it feel, still feels like a natural thing oh, whereas yeah sure. they go to one and it's a show that they set up by a real band just for the film and it feels so fake and so staged and oh, so man. not punk the whole movie feels so not punk but the entire point of the movie is that ross who is heroin bob's son his mom is still the way she was in the first movie, except now she's really scared that Ross is going to turn out like his dad and accidentally OD on a pain pill, which is what happens in the movie. The first movie, right? The irony of him never doing drugs is he takes a, a drug thinking it's a vitamin and it mixes with the alcohol that he drank. And yeah, he and we dies. didn't even talk about Bob dying, but that. <laughs> well, well, now we did. Yeah, that's a huge thing. And then Matthew Lillard, man, his performance when he finds Bob dead, it's just heartbreaking, man. It still stirs me. You saw that spit and that snot like he he really put his heart into that scene. It's a great scene. But yeah, so good. Yeah. Filmed it right. Just by himself in the room with yeah. uh, with just the person filming it. But uh, there's nothing like that in this movie because it doesn't make you care about anything. And it sucks. And Ross, his mom has kept him away from everything. And he doesn't do any of the stuff his dad did. Like he, he he's basically straight edge without being a straight edge person. Which, you know, means you don't drink or smoke or have sex or anything or, or do anything, really. Yeah, doesn't Bob at one point say, he's so straight edge, you wouldn't even hang out with the straight edge kids or something he, like he that? He does say that. I'm glad you remembered that line from the 20 minutes that you watched this uh. awful movie. So he uh, <laughs> he goes in this road trip where he does all the stuff that he said he would never do, basically because a girl breaks up with him. And, he you know, he's crying and freaking out and being real emo in his goth clothes. And his punk rock friends drive him to a punk rock show in some town. I don't get the geography of the movie. Uh, and he does drugs and drinks a lot. While he's on this road trip, we find out that basically every actor from the first film that the director could get to come back for this one is back in the same role, except now they're all cleaned up. Even Devin Sawa now, he works for a politician and he's all cleaned up in a completely different character. Apparently, they're all like Ross's 
uncle somehow, even though they didn't really have any relation to Steve-O other than like passing acquaintances or barely talking in the first movie. Now, apparently there are their heroin Bob's sons, uncles, even though like it's a surprise to everyone else in the film, like, Oh, when did you interact with him? And they have to be like, Oh, all the time. So it's nothing that we we ever see. Right. But they all go talk to, to Ross's mom and they're all worried about him. So half the movie is him on this dumb, stupid road trip. And the other half, it's just people in a room fretting about him and if he's okay and why he's doing this and not being his normal self. And it all culminates in this stupid fake punk rock show where his mom and all the friends, they all show up and they save him because he really does something that I think is just a statement from the director where he gets on stage at a punk rock show and, you know, he's got his goth clothes on, so they all hate him. But he's like, you guys are my people, man. I love you. Which I feel like is just a director saying to any punks who were angered by the first movie, hey, I didn't mean anything against you. I was making this other statement, but it doesn't mean that I think punks are losers. I love you. You're my people. I really think that's the entire reason that he made this movie. I feel like he's been thinking about this the whole time. That's pretty much it. That's the whole movie. They, the punks beat him up, and then Devin Sawa and the others save him. And then he goes outside and talks to his mom. And he's like, Mom, I'm like your surrogate spouse, and it's gross. Like, Dad's dead. You gotta let him go. And she's like, I can't. And then Devin Sawa's like, yes, you can. All of a sudden, I'm uh, a mental health counselor, and you can let him go. Everything's fine. And then she does. And then Ross is like, cool, I'm going to go hang out with my friends and be a punk now. And that's the end of the movie and it's awful and i hate you and i wish you wouldn't have made me watch it and i'm gonna be mad forever and ever and ever and i totally regret all the everything that we've talked about up to this point about how cool all our experiences you know meeting each other and being punks and playing music together were because you made me watch this movie and it was so bad i almost jumped off my roof (laughs) well that does sound truly awful my friend i'm sorry i put you through such misery but you know i had to go there we were doing slc punk why not slc punk 2 for the fallen warrior so no i mean it fits it fits you blame it blame it on the director for making another film it is his fault because how perfect right that it's not a 90s movie so it works as a fallen warrior movie and it has no right to be this bad, right? I mean, it's the creator of the original movie. Like, he could have easily made a statement just calling it Punk's Dead. It's like they're throwing it in the face of the first movie. You know, we have the Sex and Violence song that's found on an album called Punk's Not Dead, right? It's like a middle finger to it. I don't know, man. I don't know who would find any enjoyment from this movie except people who like everything. Conformists. It it doesn't... It baffles me. I don't understand how somebody who could make 1998's SLC Punk make this. Looking at James Maradino's filmography, I guess it shouldn't be that baffling because I feel like I haven't, you know, obviously I haven't seen everything that he's made, but everything else listed on his IMDb looks like utter trash. It looks like terrible B-horror porn movie or this kind of stuff. There is this one movie that he made also with Michael Gorjan and James Duvall played John the Mod called Americana. Have you heard of this or seen that? Uh, when no, I at- haven't seen any of his other movies. I honestly okay. just feel like SLC Punk was such a labor of love. There was no way he could go wrong there. It's kind of like a band that has all these ideas for years and then they get signed and put all those ideas on the first album and then all the rest of their albums suck. And you're like, what happened? And it's like, well, it was like 20 years of their life to make that first album. And then the rest, they had nothing left. And to then say. they had nothing left to say. Yeah, that's that's how I feel exactly about this, too. Looking at his filmography, it's just like this must have been such a personal project and, you know, so much 
much of him, of himself put into this that yeah, it couldn't not go right, but everything else just looks like uh, he he had no other talent left in him. This other movie, Americana, does look interesting, where it has these characters played by James Duvall and Michael Gorgian from SLC Punk, and it, it's apparently a Dogma '95 film. So he's like not even credited as director, which I think is like one of the the criteria for Dogma '95. Thanks, Lars von Trier. Thanks, Lars von Trier. Yeah, if you're not familiar with Dogma '95, go look that up. But yeah, so that is at least interesting because to me that sounds more like highbrow than some of the other garbage like B movie stuff that uh, maybe he was just like roped into doing for a studio. But yeah, I I will never watch uh, Punk's dead <laughs> Cecil C. Punk 2 all the way through because it's it sounds utterly terrible but thank you for going there oh you're welcome Jordan anything for you buddy <laughs> I have two positive things to say first of all James Duvall who plays John in both of these movies and he's Miguel in Independence Day he's yeah. Randy Quaid's son and is really embarrassed by his drunken father until the heartfelt moment at the end of that movie and the other thing is this we've said this a million times there's nothing that exists after the 90s. So Punk's Dead does not exist. Does not There's only exist. SLC Punk, and that's it. That's right. Meridino, he never made another movie. <laughs> that's the only movie. That was it. That's right. That's all we need right there. All right, well, let's move on into the trivia battle. Hold it! Pop quiz, hot shot! I will give you the privilege of going first. You just be lucky, just be happy that I haven't brought the sheriff back. To beat down on you. <laughs> I'm going to give you multiple choice this time. I'm oh, going to ask sir. you the questions myself. So yeah, we, we don't have to go there again, but count yourself lucky. That's all I'm saying. Speaking of lucky, you're very lucky too, because since you did me the honor of making me watch Punk's Dead SLC, SLC Punk 2, all of my questions are derived from that film. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so question number one. Punk's dead. SLS. I can't say it. Damn it. I can't say SLC Punk bad. 2. It's that bad. It's awful. And I will never forgive Jordan for making me watch it. Punk's dead star Ben Schnetzer, who played quote unquote protagonist Ross, played the similarly <laughs> named Russ in this 2018 film. A. Rapid Falls. B. Black Cherry. C. St. Judy. D. The Grizzlies. E. Donk Cephas is dead. Donk Cephas <laughs> Punk 2. <laughs> I'm totally going to fail this trivia round, aren't I? <laughs> I I did all my research on SLC Punk, you know, looked up the cast, you know, looked up their other movies thinking that's where you're going to go, but but no, <laughs> you, you should have known better. You got to go this route. Uh, I don't even remember the options. <laughs> um, wasn't there was there a movie called Black Cherry? Let's just go with that. Wrong. He uh, was in The Grizzlies. Uh, duh. Duh. <laughs> I should have had that. <laughs> Oh, man. All right. Well, my first question for you. Matthew Lillard's recent career seems to be stuck in hell voicing Shaggy Rogers in the straight-to-video Scooby-Doo cartoons. Which one of these choices is not a real Scooby-Doo title? I, and I, most of my questions are revolving around Matthew Lillard, just to give you a heads up. So maybe I'll do you some good there. So which one of these is not a real Scooby-Doo title? A. Scooby-Doo, The Sword and the Scoob. B, Scooby-Doo, Curse of the Spooky Spaniel. C, Lego Scooby-Doo, Blowout Beach Bash. Or D, Scooby-Doo, Curse of the Thirteen Ghosts. 
Oh my gosh, you're an asshole. Are you kidding me? This is the question you're asking me. That's right. <laughs> hey, you asked me who this? you asked me a question about <laughs> the Fallen Warrior movie. Oh my gosh. All right, I know Curse of the 13th Ghost is a real win. Blowout Beach Bash <laughs> sounds fake. But Spooky Spaniel sounds stupid. And what was the first one? The Sword and the Scoob. <laughs> I'm just going to go Sword and the Scoob because that sounds really dumb. That is real, my friend. You got it wrong. <laughs> no. Which one is it? It was the Curse of the Spooky Spaniel. I made that up. <laughs> That's, that has your name all over it. Of course you made that up. Uh, I, had, I, I, that right. I did have a Springer Spaniel growing up. So, Oh, yeah. What was that dog's name? Speckles. Uh, damn, I should have got that right. <laughs> all right, next question. Punk's Dead also stars hit musician Machine Gun Kelly as Crash. In which film did he make his debut? Was it A, Beyond the Lights? B, The Roadies? C, Viral? D, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? E, mace me. <laughs> dude, dude, I have no idea. Uh, I know it's not mace me, I don't think. Or maybe this is the one you've been saving that for all this time. Because <laughs> when you see his performance in any of these films, that's what you're going to want to happen to you. Mace me. Um, I don't know. Let me just guess viral. Wrong. Beyond the lights. Ah, damn it. <laughs> you should be a bigger Machine Gun Kelly fan. Uh, Megan Fox is... Oh, jeez. That guy looks like a tool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, sorry, Machine Gun Kelly. <laughs> sure, you're a nice guy. Lay off the tattoos. That's all. He's going to have to tattoo his organs at this point. He's got <laughs> no space left. Right. All right. Question two. Matthew Lillard was cast in 1995's Hackers alongside Johnny Lee Miller, who played Dade, Angelina Jolie, who played Kate. What was the unique name for Lillard's character? Was it A, Freak, with a P-H, B, Razor, C, The Plague, or D, Serial? Wait a minute. Okay, I remember this, and this stands out. Wasn't his name actually Serial Killer? Ah, uh, it was. It was. <sighs> you got me. tried one. to get me there. You tried to get me, you jerk, but I, I caught you. I caught you. You got me. All right, here's your third question. Good luck. Punk's Dead's female lead, whatever the hell her name was, was played by <laughs> Hannah Marks, who also starred and co-wrote this 2018 dessert-titled comedy. Was it A, Banana Split, B, Hot Fudge Sunday, C, Smarties, D, Cookies? Uh, Smarties? <laughs> Wrong! Banana Split. Uh. We're going to have to turn the gain down so much on my responses to you, because there's so much rage in them. I'm just going so hot. I'm like a volcano. Just blowing your top. That's <laughs> how much you hated Punk's Dead. Hated it. All right, so stepping away from Matthew Lillard for my next question. SLC Punk was one of Jason Siegel's first films. What was the first film he ever acted in? Was it A, Dead Man I on... This. Oh, uh, I mean, never Keep mind. Give me the options, though, because <laughs> I Never mind. I have, other I have other questions. No, 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 no. no. Give, me, give me the options. It's too uh, late. You're locked in. Uh, I'm locked in. All right, A, Dead Man on Campus... B, Can't Hardly Wait, C, Ghoulies Go to College, or D, Clueless, or E, Scooby-Doo Return to Zombie Island. Dude, I think Can't Hardly Wait and the one that he did with Zach Morris came out the first year, but dude, I think Can't Hardly Wait came out first. I'm going to say Can't Hardly Wait. 
You are right. Yes, you lose, you sucker. <laughs> You're so excited. I really am, because this next episode now is going to just be so beautiful. It's an ode to my Irish ancestors, Jordan, and I am so excited. Just know I let you win. That's all. <laughs> totally knew all those punks dead questions. Just phoning it in so you can have some perfect synergy on the next episode. Thank you. Even though I like I win all the time and I only had to watch a bad movie once and it was more than I could take. I have so much respect for you now for watching all these bad movies. Like I can't even explain. I don't to you. I don't respect myself. I'm losing self-respect. I'm losing the <laughs> trivia battle every time. I'm watching terrible movies. You know what this is doing for my self-esteem then? Terrible. Anyway, I'm going to watch the punishment movie with you. Mm -hmm. I promise you I'm going to watch it with you. I don't care what happens. Unless I die, (laughs) I will watch it with you. But first, before I get to that punishment movie, the next episode is our St. Patrick's Day episode. I am Irish. I've decided in order to honor my Irish ancestors, we're going to cover a film that makes them all look like murderous, bloodthirsty terrorists. That's right. Next episode, we're covering... Patriot Games. Ooh. I am so psyched. Harrison Ford, one of my favorite actors of all time, definitely a, a American actors. Philip Noyce directed this movie, and I like saying Noyce, but also Tom Clancy. He's kind of like Michael Crichton was for me in the 90s, too. He's like the Michael Crichton of the 90s, except they were both in the 90s, and I read like all their books when I was in middle school. So I'm really psyched that we're going to have our first Tom Clancy adaptation. And I think it's going to be great for St. Patrick's Day. I'm hoping the episode will come out right before then. But uh, Jordan, even if you think it's maybe a little dry, which I don't know, I I haven't seen this movie in so long. I loved it when I was in middle school. I've never seen this movie. Okay, good, good deal, good deal. 92 thriller action with Harrison Ford playing Jack Ryan. Yeah, I'm into that. I just watched the Jack Ryan uh, series on Amazon. Okay, that was, like that was enjoyable. mute your expectations a little because that Jack Ryan is not really true to the books. He's like a Schwarzenegger like action hero. There is some action in these older movies, but he's a he's a CIA analyst, Jordan, that yeah. gets thrown into the mix and doesn't want to. Well, that's kind of how the uh, the new Jack Ryan is. Well, the thing is, he's an analyst first, and then when he's absolutely forced into violence, oh, okay. he partakes in it. This guy, this crazy new Jack Ryan, which you know he stays pretty true to the character for the most part in that he's just a goody two-shoes boy scout but this john krasinski one is that how you say the guy yeah the guy's name that everyone loves jim uh, from the office yeah jim from the office that i didn't watch because i'm too good not only watch the british one which is far superior <laughs> i'm just gonna be a douche again more I'm douche. Jumping back on the douche train <laughs> jump on the douche train anyway harrison ford patriot games yeah that's right for, he, he's not pulling a gun every five seconds like john krasinski it, it's when he only has to, right? So don't think this is just going to be like nonstop explosions. There's definitely some explosions in this movie, as I recall, but not like a billion explosions. So just know that going in. At least if we get one explosion, I mean, even though I loved SLC Punk, well, there was the explosion that they lifted from Terminator 2, but other than that, no explosion. So yeah, we got to get back on the explosion train. I'm jonesing again for some explosions. We got, <laughs> we can't go too long without an explosion, or we might just quit this show. Well, I know for a fact that there's at least a couple of explosions in that, and hopefully there are some explosions in your punishment movie, Jordan, because Ooh. you know what? I'm going to honor my Irish ancestors even harder with your punishment. That punishment being 1996's Leprechaun 4 oh, in yes. space. <laughs> oh, nice. 
Dude, I was totally going to punish you with a Leprechaun movie, too, if I won trivia. So this yes. is perfect. I think I was going to go more Leprechaun in the hood, but I don't even think I've heard of this space Leprechaun movie. That's exciting. Well, I've watched Leprechaun in the hood with my old man like 600 times, and that one's a 2000s movie, I think. So this, right. I wanted to stay 90s with this one. Plus, you know, Irish people in space, how, how much better could it be? So I'm super <laughs> pumped about this flick, and I'm going to watch it with you, man. I'm going to stand in solidarity. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to watch this film with you. This looks amazing. I'm looking at the cover. It's got the leprechaun's face like floating above the moon. <laughs> this, Aren't you ready to watch it right I'm, now? I'm ready. I'm going to turn off this podcast and just get into this. Like, Don't forget about Patriot Games. All right. <laughs> I know you're pumped about Because these are going to pair so well together. <laughs> so similar. I really feel like they will. Uh, Sean Bean and Warwick Davis. Greatest <laughs> villains of the night. Greatest double feature ever concocted in Film Shake history. Let's do it, man. All right. This sounds exciting. Two films I've, <laughs> I haven't seen, but you know, I'm just expanding my 90s horizons and we're giving that to our audience as well. So hope you guys will join us for <laughs> Leprechaun 4 in space and Patriot Games with Harrison Ford. I'm sure you can find these <laughs> online somewhere. Leprechaun 4 is streaming. I checked. Go to your public library. Yes. BitTorrent, whatever you need to do. No, make it happen. No, cut that part. <laughs> I, I mean, wanna... it's anarchy. Anarchy. Watch it any way you can. That's right. We don't, yeah. We're not promoting that, but I mean. Anarchy you... in the interwebs, man. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our show. Thank you guys for listening. If you need to reach out to us, we'd love to hear any feedback from you. You can find us on social media at 90s Movies Pod, or you can email us at filmshakepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the show. Any recommendations for other 90s movies you want to hear us talk about? We'd love to hear that as well. Thanks, and we'll catch you next time for more Film Shake. Take it easy. You just brought your coffee? Coffee and, and homemade cookie. Like. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> It's all about anarchy, man. Right. Anarchy and the... Uh, never mind. I'm not a poser. <laughs> How do we always know to stop at the same time? That's, yeah, I don't know. It's like we've been in bands together before. Yeah, I know. I was about to say, it's like we've been in a band before. <laughs>